This is chapter 98 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we experience the power of a mother's love. We shine a light on the forgotten sacrifice of a group of young men during the Revolutionary War. Then we meet a fictional hitman who answers to the highest authority. The U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. In fact, if you were to add up all the people currently in prison, the population would be greater than those living in Philadelphia or Dallas. Former Illinois Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. knows what it's like on the inside. He served 30 months in a federal prison for stealing campaign funds. And every day of his sentence, his mother, Jacqueline, wrote him a letter. Those letters are now compiled in the new book, Loving You, Thinking of You, Don't Forget to Pray, Letters to My Son in Prison. Jacqueline and Jesse recently spoke with our Pat Farnack about what they hope to accomplish with the book. I, I love um, the title of your book. It was, and uh, my son uh, was the one who thought of the title. Ah. Um, it was my greeting to him and uh, my advice. Uh, loving you, thinking of you, I used it at different times. And don't forget to pray, I used all the time. Jesse, you served 30 months in federal prison, and you were released on June 22nd, 2015. First of all, I want to know, how are you doing, and, and how's your health? Well, thank you very much for uh, for asking. It was a, uh, a very difficult uh, journey, and one that uh, had me trapped in a, a cycle of, of shame and, and blame, guilt, and embarrassment. And I think my mother uh, saw me in that place. Um, that very dark place when I entered prison. And when I eventually shared with her that I was going to prison, which was a a process, not a day, not an event, she promised me that she would write me every day uh, in prison. And the letters really are a journey, a lifeline that my mother extended to me that helped me rehabilitate myself, helped me strengthen myself. And I really did not want her to write me. I really wanted to be left alone. I felt that I had brought enough trouble in the lives of of everyone around me, given the nature of my fall and given the nature of my incarceration. And my mother saw something uh, in my life. One of her letters, she actually says, I didn't give birth to trash, uh, and so I'm going to help rehabilitate you. She made a commitment to write me every day, and she helped make me stronger, for which I am eternally grateful. I gave uh, these letters back to her after I left prison, and I shared with her Uh, that she ought to consider uh, publishing them. Uh, I compiled them into one self-published book. A publisher picked up the the self-published book and said, we'd like to to move this book forward, and here we are. If I may add, the feeling of abandonment is a dual feeling from the mother and to the to the person who is being incarcerated, male or female. To have... um, a, a family member removed from the family is a, is, um, a form of cruelty. Uh, the level of pain uh, 
of extracting a loved one from the arms of and the embrace of a community, I feel for a nonviolent crime. In in the opening of the book, I wrote the judge, uh, Judge Jackson, uh, and I asked her to think in terms uh, of this abandonment and try to possibly use this opportunity to create a new thought pattern for nonviolent crimes in our penal system. So it was, um, it was a very painful thing, not only for my son, but for the entire family. Uh, whenever one is extracted from a family, there, there is a death and a loss. And I thought I could remedy. Uh, well, in fact, let me be perfectly honest with you. I thought I was helping him. And I found out I was helping myself because mm-hmm. the letter writing process was therapeutic. Uh, telephone calls are, to a certain extent, kind of insignificant. Yeah. If you can give a child a loved one a letter so they can put it under their pillow at night. Uh, that's very important because they can go back to it anytime they want. Uh, for two and a half million people that are presently going through this process and 68 million Americans who've been through this process, I think what my mother helped me understand is that she was establishing, whether she knew it or not, a blueprint for helping salvage people who are behind bars. And I think families have to keep that connection. And that's what I wanted to add. Loving you, thinking of you, don't forget to pray, I believe is that blueprint. We don't get that kind of connection digitally, do we? I mean, getting a letter that you can actually hold in your hands is is so powerful. And it's almost an obsolete uh, thought today yeah. because of technology. Technology is good, but uh, you don't surrender. You must be able to blend the old with the new. So letter writing is so important. And for those who cannot write, uh, your children, it will teach them to read and teach them to be compassionate. Have them write the letter for you and you sign it. Uh, That's a way for the family to participate. So I'm very uh, uh, energized by the thought that we can possibly put an end to or a dent into recidivism. Once upon a time, this institution was called correctional. However, we know nothing about the penal institution is correctional. We have to now, as citizens, seize this opportunity to end or put a dent in recidivism. Recidivism is at as high as 72% in different states and cities. That does not enhance our community. It just uh, kind of uh, allows a person to be abandoned and simmer and probably become seasoned in the criminal system. That is why... Um, the recidivism possibly occurs, and we're trying to detach them from the possibility of going and returning. And reentry is a, a, a concern that I have. How does one return to a community and know what has gone on 
when while they have been away. It's important for them to know that um, know that they have uh, who has passed while they have been away, and to know uh, what has happened to their loved ones. Piggybacking on what you just said, uh, do you feel that your your ordeal, both of you really, is in the rearview mirror now, or is it still hard even after after years? Have you been able to? Uh, put the whole prison experience in some kind of perspective, or talk about that if you would for a minute. Let me speak. Uh, let me speak for me on this okay. uh, question. Um, it is a life-changing uh, journey. I met men and women who who don't have the platform of, of Jesse Jackson or former Congressman Jesse Jackson or Mrs. Jesse Jackson, and I said, when I leave the criminal justice uh, system officially, I'm going to do everything I can to advocate for their redemption, uh, for their second chance, and for their involvement in in society. Uh, And without judgment, uh, we've done what the judge said do. We've done, in some cases, what the jury uh, has said do. There's no such thing as felonization, holding against a man or woman a mistake, or whether it's conscious or unconscious, that they made in their lives. And so I'm dedicating the rest of my life um, to the redemption of 68 million American people, I'm very serious about that, and I'm very grateful that my mother, in her letters, which, by the way, are at Barnes and Noble and Amazon.com, <laughs> uh, you know, inspired and encouraged me uh, to lift my head up and to recognize that my mistakes don't define me. She says that in several of her letters, and that the kind of young man that she raised is the kind of young man and adult that she expects me to be moving forward. We're, we all wish we had a mom like you, <laughs> like you, Jacqueline. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Thank you so much. We must use the every occasion in our lives to try to grow people and ourselves. And this is a wonderful opportunity for us to help someone else. You know, it's often been true that you get the guidance and the and the love that you need just at the right time when you when you need it. Was that the case with you, Jesse, with these letters? Could you remember any one particular letter that came in you that you said yes? You, you know, every single one of them was difficult. Again, I did not want my mother to write me, uh, let alone write me every single day. But what what I can say is that. Um, in the confines of incarceration, in the quietness of my space, no C-SPAN, no Democrats and Republicans, no New York Times, no AMSM, no staff, no Washington, D.C. and Capitol Hill constantly in one ear and coming out the other. In that confine, I met my mother again. I met the caring, the sensitive person who didn't want to abandon me. And I heard her in a way that I had not heard her in a very, very long time. And so for that moment, that opportunity to to think, to reflect, I read my mother's letters first for understanding. When I got mm. out of prison, I read them again for perspective, and it simply strengthened my spine and it helped me stand straight up. I would encourage other men and women mothers and fathers who have children or family members in this process to please consider loving you, thinking of you. Don't forget to pray 
because the letters are so simple. And yet in the confines of that space, the human mind needs access to that kind of care and love. Do you remember oh, anyone? You, honey. <laughs> do you do you remember any one particular letter, Jesse, that may not have been really poignant or profound, but it, it affected you and, and helped you? Uh, absolutely. Mama said to me in one letter, do you remember? Have you seen the summer night sky? Why haven't I heard from you? What is your cell like? How are you being treated? I'm so worried about you. I'm thinking about you, my son. Don't abandon me. I'm not abandoning abandoning you. Love always, Mom. I mean, that tugged at me. I mean, it hit me right in the chest. And the other letters where she said, oh, guess what, honey? Uh, this person died today. And three weeks ago, this person died. And then four weeks ago, this person died. And then I called my mother and said, Mom, don't send me any more letters about who's gone. <laughs> Uh, I don't don't, don't want the obits. I don't think I can take it right now. So it ranges from tears to joy, from happiness to sad, the range of emotions that only a mother can share. Again, some people don't know what to write someone under the circumstances. It is the simplicity of my mother's letters. She's writing on a train one day and she says, Jesse, I'm riding on a train one day, and a man sat next there, sat right next to me and asked me if I was spoken for. I looked at him like he was out of his mind. <laughs> you still got it. You still got it, Jacqueline. <laughs> Love mom. It's life. <laughs> no, but uh, it, it was quite an experience for a mother and quite an experience for my entire fan, family. I must admit I wrote more letters. My husband visited more often. So it had, he had the both of us trying to uh, make sure that he did not become a prisoner, that he was only a detainee, one who had been stopped on his journey in life and made to rethink his life. It sounds like both of you, neither one of you is uh, is really bitter in allowing what has happened to stop you. You both seem to be resilient and and uh, witty, <laughs> and you're going everything, on. <laughs> everything is in divine order. Uh, we live and then we die. And th- th- those are things that we will absolutely do. But what is most important is our purpose for living. We live purposeful life. Our life will be large, huge. If we live just a personal life, it is so small. And I think um, I'm going to say this to my son on national radio. Uh, he began to live a personal life. And I am hopeful now that he is getting ready to show and display to the world his real godly purpose for being here. That's actually a letter that she wrote, which also hit me very hard. (laughs) And I want to say that um, 
uh, it is because of that tone that my mother struck and the strength that she gave me in her writing that I, I came out of prison. And one of the first things that I said to her was, Mom, prison was the best thing that ever happened to me. Thank you very much for having us. That was very lovely. I want to thank you both for, for sharing so so personally and for talking to me today. I appreciate it. Oh, we couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's We're loving you and thinking so of you, and don't forget to pray. Don't forget to pray. <laughs> I will not. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. All thank right. you. Thank you. Thanks, guys, and have a great day. Okay. Goodbye. All right. Bye-bye. It's been said that heroes are born out of adversity. And if you need a real-life example, look no further than the hundreds of young men from Maryland who sacrificed themselves during the Battle of Long Island during the Revolutionary War. Never heard of the Maryland 400? Well, you aren't alone. That's because about 100 years after that pivotal battle took place, the story was lost to history. Until now. Author Chris Formant recounts the forgotten story and its impact on the United States in his new book, Saving Washington, the Forgotten Story of the Maryland 400 and the Battle of Brooklyn. He recently told me how he stumbled across the tale. It was actually by accident and uh, somewhat serendipitous. Um, I'm uh, from Baltimore, Maryland, and I was reading in the Baltimore Sun one day I was reading the Baltimore Sunday, and I came across about a one-paragraph announcement of a wreath-laying ceremony in Prospect Park, Brooklyn, honoring the Maryland Regiment um, at the Battle of Brooklyn on August 27, 1776. And the caption was, the Maryland 400 who saved America. I had never heard of this before. So I, I did what any of us would do. You know, I picked up my phone, I Googled uh, Maryland 400, and this story unfolded that, you know, only only deep historical purists, you know, probably even heard of, uh, or people that may, have, that may live along Prospect Park. And this whole story unfolded, and I started um, researching it more and more. I had never intended to write a historic novel. I write fiction, fictional novels, but I never intended to do this, but it just captured my imagination the more that I dug and the more that I realized that these young men that had been lost in history saved the country six weeks after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, and I was stunned. I was absolutely stunned. I think there are probably a lot of people who fall into that same boat as you. I mean, oh, yeah. you mentioned Prospect Park. I know there's yep. a memorial there, but I guarantee you there are people who walk by it every day. Well, that have and no it's idea. sort of hidden. It's hidden. Um, uh, it's it's hard for me to describe, but um, but it's not in the main part of the park where everybody hangs out. You could walk by it and not notice it. So the main characters in your book are two teenagers. Yes, one black, one white. Why did you really want to explore the way a teenager would react and want to enlist in this fight? Well, one one of the things that um, that struck me, and one of it's just a is just obvious that young people and teenagers always fight the wars. You know, it's uh, other adults, uh, older people may get us into it, but the the kids are the ones that fight it. And um, the average age in the American Revolution was fairly young. It was as as uh, you know, there are there are fourteen and fifteen year olds that were fighting. Wow. Um, uh, the other thing that struck me as I did my research was that slaves and free blacks fought um, 
in in the um, you know in the combat units, they weren't behind the scenes. They fought, and in fact, the Revolutionary War I found was the most integrated war force until the Korean War. And so, um, you know, I, I thought, well, w- instead of just going back over the and rehashing the old the old uh, history lessons of, you know, we revolted because of taxes, you know, the Boston Tea Party and all that. Um, I thought I I thought I'd tell the story, which there was hardly any written about. So it was great for a fiction writer to deal with. Um, I thought I'd tell it through the eyes of two kids. And um, because at the end of the day. There, there aren't teenagers on the face of the earth that are going to go on suicide missions for taxes. So I wanted to uncover what what could have really motivated this kind of heroic action. And I really do think you get to the heart of it. It ends up being it. everybody has a personal reason for being in this fight. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Did the reasons that you came up with for these teens to fight, did that evolve as you were writing the book, as you found out more things? Yes. Yes, and um, uh, you know one of the one of the groups that really helped me a lot um, was the uh, Heritage Foundation at the Army War College. So the Army War College helped me a lot of uncovering. They were a source of a lot of the archival information because there just isn't a whole lot, and what's out there regurgitates the same thing. Much of it contradicts each other, you know. So they were kind of my. Um, they were kind of my sniff test on what I was writing. You know, Chris, this doesn't make sense or this wouldn't happen this way. You know, and it's, it's it's an imperfect history lesson, but a great historic novel. And when I first approached them and went through it, um, some of the, you know, the, the, um, these decorated military heroes that I was talking to, only one person had even heard of it before. And when I went through that, this was such a pivotal moment. And up until about 100 years after the Revolutionary War, it had been characterized as the most precious hour in American history and it had been lost. And I said, I remember ending it because uh, it was kind of an emotional discussion that we were having. And I said, General, you know what the saddest part of all this is? Is that these may be the most important yet most forgotten citizen soldiers in the history of the United States, America's 400 Spartans that we, we sort of call them. Um, and I said, they're scattered in unmarked graves under the streets of Brooklyn. And um, they started tearing up and they said, Chris, whatever help you need, you got, you know. So it was, um, it, it was a, um, a fairly heavy lift to get a decent amount of information and a lot of it contradicted itself. So, um, you know, I chose to write a fiction and I chose to write it from the viewpoint of these two teenagers, two young men, uh, because I wanted to, because it was intuitively, it was clear that they weren't fighting for taxes. So what was really going on in their minds and in the minds of their, of their uh, compatriots? Well, you had to fill in the blanks a lot yeah. because there wasn't a lot out there. No. One of the things I find fascinating is the one thing you didn't have to make up, which feels like you maybe should have, was this whole divine fog. Yeah, and that Can, was real. Yeah. T- why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, and um, it's it's interesting because it's been, uh, even though we got our butts kicked in this in the Battle of Brooklyn or Battle of Long Island, and I think that's why this stuff has been buried for years, you know, because you don't, it's not fun to talk about um, uh, losses out there. It's more fun to talk about the wins. But, um, you know, at the end of it, there was a whole, it's like a lot of pivotal moments in history 
um, that if it wasn't for a set of events that coalesced at that moment, it would have never happened. And the coalescing of the weather, um, uh, certain properties of the East River that that would allow um, uh, Washington and his army to escape, this suicide mission of the Maryland 400 to buy the Continental Army and Washington to time to escape, and then this um, and Washington always thought that he was, you know, he had um, the divine following him and guiding him his whole life. Um, uh, at the very moment that they needed some help, um, a fog, and it's been called in history a divine fog, a very thick fog, enveloped the battlefields and the East River and gave them the air cover to get out. So it's a it's a stirring, you know, when you think about it, and, and I tried to write this in a very cinematic style, it's kind of a it's kind of a stirring picture when you think about it. And it happened right here, you know, five miles away. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what's really fascinating. You know, this is the and it's been lost, you know. Yeah, and it, this is the third book about Washington about this period in American history that we featured on the mm-hmm. podcast this year alone. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that, you know, the Revolutionary War is is everybody's coming back and, you know, rediscovering these stories? Well, um personally, I think when um particularly in these kind of divisive political times, you know, when 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 th- when everybody intuitively feels that it's off the track, you know, you kind of go back to the basic fundamentals. And what more basic than what was the devotion um, and the thinking and the rationale for us to create our new nation? And what was going through the minds of all these young men, you know, that were sacrificing themselves? It wasn't for taxes, you know. Right. And, you know, you mentioned the cinematic quality to which you've written the book. And it really does, you know, I was on the edge of my seat, even though this is history that is hundreds of years old. But Mm. you you mentioned that we may see this on the big screen. Yeah, it's just been um, uh, it's been optioned by um, the by Greg Feinberg, who was the executive producer and Emmy Award winning producer for Big Little Lies from HBO, uh, Deadwood, True Blood, Sharp Objects. Um, he's a big name out in Hollywood. Um, and, um, you know, he, he's, he's really the first one that, that characterized it as America's 400 Spartans. He says, this is as close to the Battle of Thermopylae as we have. And these are the, these are maybe the, the, you know, some of the best and, and some of the first real American heroes. And and I think that people are looking for, uh, back to your previous question, I think that people are looking for heroes, you know, and, and we have them right here in our own backyard in New York. And, um, uh, and, and some of the most pure, who devoted, had the most pure of intentions, you know, at the time. And I think also there's something to be said in that these heroes came out of a massive loss and that you don't yes. have to win yes to be that type of person yes well and and washington certainly learned the lesson he could have got, he could have gone in two ways he could have you know held a battle you know uh, exercised a battle to the death you know um but he wasn't an ego person and he was playing for the long haul and he knew that this was going to be a war of attrition and um i mean he was a soldier's general and um, uh, and thank God that the Maryland 400, uh, like the 300 Spartans, uh, stood up to uh, the 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 strongest um, uh, and most renowned military army in the world 
they were they were the estimates were that they were outnumbered anywhere from like 10 to 20 25 it was it was 400 people against almost 10,000 and so uh, they attacked the british at their center six times in order to buy the time it was an extraordinary um, it was an extraordinary example of a selfless act that that i think i think if they didn't do that and most historians agree if that event, if they didn't do that and sacrifice themselves, we'd probably be speaking with a British accent. And that's what's mind-boggling, that this story's been lost, that it was yep. so pivotal, and yet most people have no idea who these men were. Yeah, nothing, nothing. And I'm from Maryland, and I'm from Baltimore, where they were from. Uh, we call them in the book the Sons of Baltimore, from Baltimore and Annapolis, and I had no clue. Then when I started looking into it, you know, I find these these monuments that the Sons of the American Revolution and and other organizations had. This was celebrated for so for almost a hundred years, and then it was lost. I have no idea. Um, but you know, to think that that perhaps our some of the most important citizen soldiers in the history of the United States are scattered in unmarked graves under Brooklyn is just mind-boggling, and it was mind-boggling to the military. Yeah, I happened to do like a Wikip search before we sat down for this interview, and you know, their thoughts that there might be a mass grave under an auto body shop somewhere in Brooklyn, and it's just, you know, it's it's amazing that that's how these yeah. these dead have been. Well, treated. that one's been debunked. You know, oh, yeah? a little bit less than a year ago, there was um, uh, New York was going to build a new school right on that property, and. Um, uh, and um, there's actually, I think on my website, there's a picture of it. Um, but uh, it was uh, protested by a historical society um, to give them or some ex-historical archaeologists the time to go and dig. They just didn't find it. They found a couple bones, but it wasn't, um, but it wasn't the mass grave. I think that, it, and, and I never thought it would be, um, the battlefield at that time, Gowanus was a swamp. Mm. And so, you know, you're not going to bury people in the swamp. They're going to bury them in dry. And so it's, it's only speculation as to where the dry ground. And, um, you know, maybe with some of the advanced techniques that they have um, uh, and the radar penetrating, you know, you know, techniques, they might be able to find it. But um, uh, I don't know. It wasn't where it had, been, it had been rumored for, you know, a number of years. It might be one of those secrets forever lost to history. Probably. What is the one thing you hope people, readers, take away from your book? Um, th there, there were two things. I mean, it's probably two things. One was I, I, I wanted people to see, especially in this kind of political environment, what real patriotism was. And, um, and even George Washington at the time um, uh, had railed against fake patriotism or nationalism, you know, and so you know I want people to, to get the same sense of a, of emotional attachment that I did to that event, um, and um, uh, and see what real selfless patriotism is. They had a devotion that was unbelievable, and I think what I found in my and what I found in my research was something really super interesting is that I was always taught we the revolution was because of taxes. Well, taxes are a rich person's problem. The merchants who were most affected by it underwrote the war. There wasn't a standing army, so they underwrote these state regiments and militias that formed this. Um, 
so the environment at the time was sort of the um, coalescing of this this taxation issue, this overbearing. One, there were a lot of legal disputes at the time because of the second-class nature of the American colonists. They had a heavy influence of French philosophers and this whole idea of American exceptionalism and the virtuous citizen came, you know, that said, hey, if this is a... If if you've got a bad situation like this, like in ancient Athens, you should throw out the, you know, the the rulers, which is which is what George Washington believed. And then you had something which I had never heard of before, and the um, the uh, military historians that I talked to uh, confirmed it. That um, and it first started in New England and then came down the coast, first with congregational, congregationalist ministers in, um, in the Boston area. Um, they were pounding on their parishioners every Saturday and Sunday that this was against God's will and that um, uh, they, they were God's children. They were, not the, they were not the king's children, and this was against God's will, and they were meant to be free. You know, and what I found out in doing that was we always, you know, when you think back and all of us that have studied, you know, American history, they talk about people coming to the new world. And I just thought, well, that's just a, that's across the ocean. That's a new geographic, that's a geographic location. They said, no, 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 no. That's a spiritual location. They, they thought of the new world as a new way of living, certain types of, you know, allowed to have certain self-expression and freedom of religion and all that sort of stuff. Um, and they, they um, compared it to the Israelites in Egypt. And so they defined it, the new world, that was code for the new Jerusalem. And so what was being pounded into these kids, and they were very impressionable, all those things that I mentioned, all the stuff that we, we normally see, plus this whole thing about this was against God's will, and the ministers and priests were telling them this is against God's will, it's immoral. And so you know they, were, they picked up a banner of not, of not just you know, personal rights, they felt an obligation. And so, you know, um, that I wanted to bring out because I had never heard that before. I had never, and everyone I've talked to, spoken to has never heard that kind of, um, uh, there's, a, there's a word to describe it in, in Muslim revolts, and I don't want to use it because I've been mm-hmm. told not, but it was as close to that kind of uh, religious revolution that is with that we've ever had in this country, and it, it's it's interesting too thinking how we then ended up with separation of church and state when oh, it was yeah. church leaders who were very influential in, in getting people to pick up arms. Yeah, not at the at the time there wasn't that. Well, they did in the decalogue, but it was it was pretty um, uh, it, it was pretty tightly bound. And George Washington, um, as I came to find, was an extremely a devoted religious person. He thought that he was being guided by the divine. Um, in in fact, I found out, um, you know, a few weeks ago that when his when he was born, either his mother or the house she was in was struck by lightning, and she thought that he was divinely touched throughout his whole. And and there there are situations in his life that look surreal that someone you know the hand of god or 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 just a you know just luck had come in and he always he dedicated everything to god and then that um that event you know 
in at the end of the book of that fog that was real you know just sort of that just that that was sort of that went without saying for him he thought that this was he was being guided in a way that that was beyond him and we and we have a whole country to thank for it you oh yeah know? absolutely well the it's a fascinating edge of your seat history lesson Saving Washington, the forgotten story of the Maryland 400 and the Battle of Brooklyn. Chris Foreman, thank you so much for coming by and talking to us. Oh, well, thank you so much for inviting me. Pop quiz time. What's the world's best-selling book? If you answered the Bible, you're correct. Now stop and think about how many other books you've read where God is a main character. I'm not being flippant here, really. Think about it. He really doesn't appear in fiction that often. So imagine my surprise when I picked up the thriller Dangerous Purpose and discovered the higher authority that protagonist Jack Tyrell works for is none other than the man upstairs himself. And you know what? It works. I recently had a chance to talk to author Jeff Loftus about his divine inspiration. I was um, I was trying to create a character uh, for a series. I had not written a series before, and I was convinced that that was the way to go in my writing career. And I was just casting about for ideas, and I was getting absolutely nowhere. And one day, and I cannot tell you why this happened, but it popped into my mind that if I used uh, the beginning of A Christmas Carol, where Marley's ghost appears to Ebenezer Scrooge and sets him on a path of spiritual enlightenment, that that could be the foundation of a of an interesting thriller series. And uh, the minute I had that idea, and I mean the minute I had that idea, all the other details fell into place. I knew what Jack Tyrell's, uh, my hero, uh, I knew what his backstory was going to be. I knew what was going to happen to his wife. I knew what his partner, Harry, was going to be like. It, it just all happened instantly. I have never had that experience in my writing. It's kind of divine intervention, if you will. Well, I, you know, I'm reluctant to say that, but yeah, it, it is. You know, this is a thriller book, and it has what you would expect to come from thrillers, the action. There's there's a lot of killing. But I also find it, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> which is interesting considering who Jack works for. But, yes. <laughs> you know, the there's also a lot of theological debate woven in this whole idea of free will and why God allows certain things to happen. How did, you know, how did you decide to to straddle that line? Um, I, I felt I, I had never read anything quite like that. And it occurred to me that when I started writing um, this book using A Christmas Carol as the platform, that that was a kind of obvious way to go. If you read Dickens's novels, A Christmas Carol, it's very, very obvious. But in some of his other books as well, this this need for spirituality, this need for uh, social justice, they pervade those books. And it occurred to me that I could do that in these thrillers and that it would be different than pretty much what anybody else is doing. At least I hope it's different than what anybody else is doing. Are you yourself spiritual and or religious? Yes. yes. And I um, I grew up educated by the Jesuits, and uh, they, they really stressed this idea that you have to think for yourself, you have to make choices, uh, that you know, free will is extremely important, and that you have to come to your own decisions about how you're going to behave and what is right or wrong. And so I, I used uh, 
my education to to shape this character and what goes on with him. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess those Jesuits were connected to Fordham. Uh, yes, they were. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why Jack Tyrell went to Fordham. Well, those same Jesuits taught me as well. So <laughs> we're, we're on the same boat there. Yes. How much of you is in Jack or are you more like one of the other characters in his world? I get asked this a lot. And since since we're on the phone, you can't see me. But, you know, Jack Tyrell is six foot two and he's ex-military and ex-law enforcement. And I'm five foot seven and an English major. So <laughs> <laughs> um, on the surface, there's nothing uh, in common between us. On the other hand, Jack thinks uh, and and speaks the way I do. And that's a deliberate choice because it makes it easier for me as the writer to maintain his character and my narrative voice, and I can concentrate on other things. So if it were possible for me to be six foot two and a former Green Beret and a former Marshal, then yeah, I would be Jack Tyrell. <laughs> <laughs> of all the things Jack has at his disposal, I have to say I'm the most envious of the whooshing. Yeah. Um, you know, Harry, uh, his partner, is his guardian angel. Um, and, um, you know, Harry whooshes Jack to all sorts of places. And it's a fantastic device for me as an author in that uh, in many thrillers, you have to explain how your hero is able to get to a certain place or learn certain kinds of information. And I don't have to bother with any of that stuff. There are no mechanics. Uh, you know, if, if Harry decides it's okay to whoosh Jack someplace, he does. And and for people who haven't read your books yet, this mm -hmm. the, the idea that it, it's kind of hard to, to, I guess, wrap your head around the fact that not everything is going to go Jack's way, which is kind of odd considering he's working for God and you would assume everything would be taken care of and the good guys would always win. Well, I, I don't use this saying in any of the books, although I probably should. I'm a big believer in the phrase, everything will be all right in the end. If it's not all right, it's not the end. And um, what that means is that these books are not the end. You know, Jack always has more adventures to come. And as a result, sometimes things don't work his way. I love that that idea, that saying. I'm going to keep that one. Okay. And so I'm guessing then we have more Jack Tyrell books to look forward to. I hope so. Uh, yes, I just finished a, a new one called No Traveler Returns. Uh, it will probably be out this summer. And I'm starting work on the one after that. The new book is Dangerous Purpose. Jeff Loftus, thank you for taking some time to talk to us about it. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. And let's put our bookmark there. Next time around, we feature a novel about a modern-day dynasty from none other than the great-granddaughter of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Between now and then, keep tabs on our growing book dynasty, kind of how I like to think of it, on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.